Yo, it's the Southside's own Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Abreu massacres this ball to left center field. Donna goes in motion left. Snap it to Michelle. He's running to the left. Angling 25-20. Got a block for Brown. 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. Don't win it. We're headed to Atlanta. Trubisky's going to run it. And he is going to get a first down. How about Trubisky to the 42-yard line? Oh, my goodness. In the ring. Steamboat's got him up. A slam. The Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up, what's up? And welcome in. You're listening to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. With open phone lines for you, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is the telephone number. Hit me up on Snapchat, SnapJHood, on Instagram, IGJHood, as I broadcast live from our first Midwest Bank Studios. the program tonight we will hear from james fagan who covers the chicago white Sox for the for uh, the uh, athletic the athletic.com trying to get him a job here uh the uh james fagan from the athletic will be with us we'll get a chance to talk about the white Sox. they take on the orioles over a guaranteed rate we'll talk to him in a moment from now because rick hahn the general manager of the White Sox got a chance to speak to the media just moments ago. So we'll get the latest on what Han had to say. Also, for the first time in over 20 years on ESPN 1000, you will hear from Brian Hanley. Brian Hanley will be on the program coming up at the bottom of the hour here on ESPN 1000. Brian knows his uh, horses. So he'll let us know what's going on with the Kentucky Derby this weekend. Also, we'll just do some catch-up because Brian and I I have been teammates and colleagues for got to be close to 20 years in the business. So we'll hear from Brian coming up at 7.30. Good to catch up with him. Also, we'll hear from longtime friend Chris Ranji. We'll be on the program as well because he is working at 101 ESPN, our sister station in St. Louis. You know, the Cubs are taking on the Cardinals coming up starting tomorrow. That's always a great series. Whether it's at Bush or at Wrigley Field, it's always a great series. You're not worried about the records. You just look at the rivalry between these two teams. So we'll hear from Chris's standpoint, what is what are the Cardinals doing? Why are they off to a, a nice start here as we get into the month of May? Also, we'll have Tales from the Hood, stories of sports, entertainment, everything else in between. And we got to get, by the way, we got to get Hanley's Kentucky Derby picks. We got to make sure we get that. We got to hear from uh, Brian on his Kentucky Derby picks because he's won money for people. So if you're into that kind of thing, we got something for you. And of course, oh, 
Let me check the calendar here. May 2nd, it's Thursday. So that means... That's throwback. Throwback Thursday. Yes. Throwback Thursday coming up at 935. We got something special for you for Throwback Thursday. So make sure you stay by your listening device because we got some fun for you. We always have fun for you on Under the Hood. But Throwback Thursday is one of the things we really enjoyed bringing to you every Thursday. So Throwback Thursday is going to be fun. 935 right here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. With you till 10 o'clock. And then it'll be Dan Levitard, Stu Gatz, and Jorge Sedano right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Glad that you're with us. It's time to take a look at the uh, Chicago White Sox. Um, the White Sox are getting ready to take on the, the Chicago White Sox. How about that? That's exactly right. The White Sox are getting ready to take on the uh, Red Sox. The Sox of the white color uh 13 and 15 the red Sox are 14 and 17 there is some news coming out of guaranteed rate let's get to james fagan who covers the white Sox for the athletic he's at guaranteed rate he joins us here on espn 1000 and the espn app james as always i appreciate your time um i want to get your thoughts about the weather conditions out there are we going to get the game in um you know it's not really definitive uh, they just kind of cleared the tarp off, so I think at that point the, the plan is for that to happen. But, uh, you know, it, it's definitely a kind of a shaky forecast. I think it's cleared up significantly in the last hour or so, but we'll kind of see. I wouldn't be surprised by a delay at some point. James, what's the latest on Carlos Rodon? Uh, Carlos has something complex and wrong uh, in his left arm. It was called an edema in his flexor mass. That was related to uh, forearm tightness that he had. Uh, Rick Hahn kind of summarized it more as uh, blood in his muscle. And frankly, they still have to do a lot more to really nail down what the cause of it is. It sounds like he's going to have a lot more MRI, including that weird kind of funky ink thing where they try to find something. The more complex MRI that you Darvish didn't wind up having until kind of later in the season last year, he's going to undergo that uh, without delay as opposed to the Darvish situation because they really don't really know what's wrong with him. Um, you know, a lot of people use the word Tommy John today as something that could be the eventual result of that. You know, when you have know, low trouble and it, it, it's as serious as this and you're kind of having for us, that's certainly something that could happen at some point. So it's obviously not the immediate diagnosis. James Fagan from The Athletic as we talk about the Sox and Orioles with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So, James, um, from... When Rick Hahn speaks, there's a lot of words, and you try to decipher and try to decode exactly what he's saying. So there was a direct question asked to him about needing rotation help. So what do you think after what he said is going to be the goal for Hahn to try to find someone to replace Santana now Rodon? Um, I definitely don't think it's going to be anything major uh, or like kind of, you know, Franchise altering or uh, rebuild shaping type of acquisition. I don't definitely don't think Dallas Keuchel is something that's like on the horizon. He made it much more sound like a stopgap uh, to patch between you know any injuries they would have and when Dylan Cease eventually kind of comes up, which I continue to think is going to be second half, uh, probably in August. Uh, I think any kind of real determination about whether they need a long-term veteran addition uh, would probably come after the season. Uh, you know, I think. It would definitely behoove them to be kind of, uh, 
you know, looking at the trade market this offseason, if there's any team that's trying to sell a guy with multiple years of control to kind of be in on that. But, you know, it, it's a long shot to say that that would come together perfectly. Uh, it's also a long shot based on the history of the White Sox would, you know, sign a, a long-term starter. So uh, it, it's really hard to say how they would augment it. But I think the way the injuries are piling up, uh, you know, it's definitely going to become a rally that they have to face at some point. Well, if Dallas Keuchel is available, or if you're looking to try to find someone that is on the scrap heap that you want to be able to piecemeal this rotation together, why don't you? I, I just sometimes you just don't outdumb the room. You, you know what you are as a franchise, but if you just want to be able to grow, why not have someone that can give you a, a live arm and give you some innings? Someone like Keuchel specifically, in particular. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean for him, I think you know they're still really in the kind of load up young talent mode and as much as you know it's probably a decent bet that Dallas Keuchel would deliver more value to the franchise than a you know someone they'd take in the second round would be I think they're still in the mode of just absolutely directing not sacrificing any resources toward adding young talent to you know kind of providing more short-term or stopgap uh, value on the major league team so you know, it's not just the value of the second round pick and who you get there you know that kind of increases your overall draft bonus pool, and that maybe increases the, your ability to go over slot if you need for your third overall pick, which is, you know, I think, more inarguably an extremely important move uh, and something that will shape the direction of the rebuild. <laughs> You've been around Han a lot, I can tell. <laughs> a little bit. I'm just saying, like, all I'm telling you is that you can have as, as many – young players, and you can stockpile as much young talent as you want. But it's kind of like the stock market. If you are having all these assets and they don't grow, then what's the point? And, and how long are you willing for it you know, to grow? That's, I guess that, that's my point. I mean, because at some point you've got to, as I've been saying on the air, you've got to find your John Lester at some point to be able to jumpstart this thing. For sure. Uh, I definitely agree with you. I definitely think you know, this offseason would really be uh, reflect very badly on them if they didn't weren't aggressive in the free agency or weren't willing to make some of those uh, sacrifices of drastic. Keichel's is really not my guy that I would identify as a lesser type. I think all of his peripherals were trending in a bad way uh, last season or two. Uh, I think that's only going to continue to happen. I think his best year by far would be this year, and he'd kind of take a while to really uh, you know, get him ramped up to that level given how long he's been off, and then he'd probably swiftly decline uh, in the seasons where you'd be any good and having a kind of – uh, a, a mainstay rotation guy would really help you and behoove, uh, you know, be great for you. So I'd really think that, you know, just, just to throw out another name, I think going after Garrett Cole this offseason would be a lot more valuable and a lot more worth it than uh, Tim Geichel, who's someone I, I just really am not high on his profile going forward. What else did Han say that was of interest to you? Hmm. Um, I, think I, I would say acknowledging that, you know, the pitching is kind of a uh, – hit the rocks a little bit and that they're going to have to add something. I mean, who's the biggest free agent starter the White Sox have ever added? It's kind of hard for me to think of something, uh, you know, extremely like, you know, world changing. They've been a lot more uh, kind of trying to pick up post type guys like say Gavin Floyd or, or John Danks and trade. And it would really be kind of new territory for them to really give the kind of long-term deal to a veteran starter that they've never really done before. I think it'd be kind of below my mind if they went after Garrett Cole as smart as a move that it, it might be. So the, the idea that maybe they're itching toward that and seeing that 
this development of their pitching is really not going as well as maybe they hoped. Uh, but that was interesting. My friend, as always, I appreciate your time. Enjoy your time at the ballpark tonight. All right, thanks. James Fagan from TheAthletic.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Hit me on Snapchat, SnapJHood, also on Instagram, IGJHood. Let me get on to something else here. I saw a piece in that same publication, The Athletic, TheAthletic.com, written by Jason Jinks. Not Bobby Jinks, Jason Jinks. The piece is entitled Old School versus New School, Inside Baseball's Hundred Years War. So here's how the piece starts. It says... In the first month of the 1966 season, something strange happened. Players started getting fined for talking to other players. Six players from the Atlanta Braves were fined $25 each on opening day. So were six Phillies. The Alou brothers, Felipe, Maddie, and Jesus, were instructed not to be so chummy in full view of the stands, or else they too would get fined for breaking the league's no fraternization rule. Um, you mean I can't talk to my brother, Jesus Salou, uh, asked the Giants manager, Herman Franks. He says, go ahead, but it's going to cost you $25 if they catch you. So instead, the Alou brothers stood on the field 35 feet apart and pretended that they were actually talking. It was silly, ridiculous, and about 10 other adjectives, but it was also old school. Herman Franks, the former Cubs manager, former Giants manager, says, no, you can't even talk to your brother, even though he's on the other team. And so they were just pretending like they weren't really talking, but they were. And baseball loves nothing more than to talk about old school. It's very interesting. Just the other day, Royals manager Ned Yost sized up the state of the game's culture clash by saying, we're in a transition right now. Baseball is in a transition from old school to new school. Well, reading that column today, it made me think about the difference between baseball and the other sports. In the NBA, you can look at the league and say, boy, look how things have changed. It was about the big man. It was about the center Try to get as many centers as you could. It was so weird during that time, too. Millennials won't even get this, that didn't matter if the big guy was good or bad. Just find some oaf, some big guy that can just get close to the hoop so he can score. Didn't matter if he was good or bad. Just find someone seven foot. That's how the NBA once was. And then the idea that maybe a two-guard could actually carry a team I remember Jerry Krause being laughed at. Like, there's no way in 1984 in in that area that uh, a two-guard could actually do something. They were just kind of like on the floor because it was about the big man. Well, you see how the NBA has changed. It is about the three-point shot now. In the National Football League, where it's about running the football when I was growing up, run the football between the tackles, run to the wall time and time again, receivers would do run their routes, but they were just kind of like garnish. They weren't the stake. They were kind of like garnish because if you didn't have a great wide receiver, if you had someone that was average, they would run their routes. But ultimately, it's about trying to find a good quarterback that can hand the ball off to a running back. That's really what it was when I was growing up. Run into that brick wall time and time again. And so looking at the National Football League now, you see tons of yardage. And you see that you can be able to throw the football down the field and be able to uh, score quickly because this is where the NFL is right now. It's about points. It's about trying to get possessions. It's also about trying to get the ball down the field to the big-time playmakers. Also, there was a time in the NFL where there was value for defense. That's a whole different story right there. 
I, I still believe in defense, and maybe you still believe in defense, but it's interesting that there are teams that are just looking for as much offense as possible. That quarterback, that wide receiver, that gadget player that can be able to enhance what they do offensively. As we talk about this with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. So clearly, as you and I watch the NFL and college, it's about being a passing league. And you look at the National Hockey League with its diversity. There was a time where you could talk about the Willie O'Rees and we talk about certain players on rosters in the National Hockey League. And now that there is a groundswell to be able to have more diversity in the National Hockey League so you can grow the sport. So it won't be so country club. I know some people are still uh, taken aback by that. But here in 2019, I think you get everybody else under the tent. You grow your sport that way. You're not struggling in the TV and radio ratings every year trying to get the sport to grow. Point is, is that old school versus new school is always very fascinating because generationally there's always going to be arguments on what was best. But when it comes to Major League Baseball and reading this piece today uh, in theathletic.com, I, I was reading some of these old anecdotes from like 1951 where the baseball started arguing about bean balls, a hallmark of the old school. The Brooklyn Dodgers played the New York Giants. Someone in the Brooklyn dugout heard someone in the Giants dugout holler, stick it in his ear. The Giants pitcher tried to stick it in the batter's ear. He missed. The batter bunted the ball down the first baseline on purpose so he can run into the pitcher. A brawl nearly broke out. After the game, the batter complained in the press, it's got to stop before someone gets hurt. This beanball throwing has to stop. I hope what I did helps it stop. That was in 1951. If, if I didn't give you the year, I, you would think that was in 2019. <laughs> I could have played blind resume with you and said that was something that happened today in like an Arizona Cardinal, Arizona Diamondbacks game, and you wouldn't know the difference because that's how baseball is and how it was back then. In 1987, a little used uh, backup named Tom Lawless, I have his baseball card, I remember Tom Lawless, hit a home run against the Twins in Game 4 of the World Series. Lawless stood at home plate. He watched the ball soar or barely clear the wall and chucked his bat to the side like he was making a WWE entrance. Don Baylor, then with the Twins, wanted revenge. He said, I never saw Reggie Jackson do that. Hank Aaron, Frank Robinson, Harmon Killebrew, Tom Lawless? you got to be kidding me. If I was a pitcher, I'd know what to do, even if it was the World Series. You see, if I didn't tell you it was in 87, you would think there would be some meathead baseball player from 2019 that thinks he's, he chucked his bat. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is not good. we got to put the ball in his ass. And, that, and that's exactly the problem with baseball. I read this piece thinking about how so many don't want change when it comes to baseball because they hold on to the tradition. When people watch the National Football League and they got used to watching three yards in a cloud of dust, running the football time and time and time again, watching strong defenses hold offenses down six to three, now you're seeing these video game numbers from some of these teams offensively because finally the NFL coach said, wait a minute, you mean to tell me he threw for 4,000 yards in college? You mean he had 45 touchdowns? You mean his touchdown-to-interception ratio was this? Well, well, he doesn't need to run my playbook. We need to run his. Duh. I just talked to Matt Bowen about this two weeks ago on the program. It, it, it took almost a melting of the ice age for coaches in the NFL to realize, hey, 
that guy can play, but it, but he was acclimated to his playbook and not your arcane playbook. But I think that NFL fans, for the most part, understand that it's a different game. And here's why they understand. The ratings are just as high. It's as, just as popular as it once was. One of my things, by the way, the NFL is one of the reasons why that it maintained the feeling of popularity and more viewership is because Goodell was not available. You didn't see Goodell all season. You didn't see him around. And so that was a positive, and you didn't have a lot of – you had controversial stories, but you didn't see Goodell. I think that was a positive. But the point is is that NFL fans enjoy what they're watching. The, the NBA fan is enjoying what they're watching because they realize when they watch the Rockets and they watch the Golden State Warriors, that ball's going up time after time after time. This is what it's about. It's possessions. This is why the Bulls are so far behind, trying to space things out, trying to dump it down into Lopez like it's 1989. That's, there's your difference there. It's okay for change. You don't want to be behind the times when it comes to change. And for you, the baseball fan that thinks that Tim Anderson is too much of a showboat or you think that players are flipping their bats or you think Latino players that get themselves into the game by raising their arms and, and trying to get the dugout into uh, what they're doing, like Little League players, that's the fun that's needed for Major League Baseball. And that's relating to a story that was out there, we'll talk about a little bit later on, about Major League Baseball and how, once again, the attendance is down. Twelve teams in Major League Baseball having a, a loss of revenue. You can blame the weather, but you can also blame the fact that even with average weather, I'm not going out there because I've seen it all before. There's nothing different. When you see Tim Anderson, Tim Anderson in particular, that's different. When you see players getting into it, entertaining you, besides just playing baseball, that's something different. And there's nothing wrong with difference in sports. In your life, if you're just used to the same old, same old, and you don't even want to look left or right and see how you can approach things differently, you get what you deserve. <laughs> you, some people like vanilla ice cream and don't want any sprinkles. They don't want anything on their, on their ice cream. Cool. Uh, from my standpoint, it's okay to be able to try different things. And I think that these other sports were able to move along with the times, what fans want versus, oh, you mean to tell me that I got a, a perfect game going and that guy bunted down the third baseline and he, and he reached safely? That's a no-no. It's, it's nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. If the game survives, it's going to be up to millennials and the next generation after millennials to try to save this thing. Get it out of the hands of the old creaky man. Get it out of that, that baby boomer that still holds on to tradition because tradition is what baseball's all about. Baseball's dying. And baseball can be right up there with the other sports as far as getting better and being more progressive and just be able to look at the times, look at the type of players that are out there now on the field. Glad you're in today. Coming up next, talk to an old friend. First time in 20 years he's been on ESPN 1000. He also has his Kentucky Derby information. We've got to get that at some point as well. Brian Hanley. Is next. As I combine all the juice from the mine, heal up, wheel up, bring it back, come rewind. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Look in my eyes, what do you see? 
Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Glad that you're with me here on this Thursday night. We turn now to a colleague of mine for over 20 years. We worked together. I produced his talk shows, read his columns in the Chicago Sun-Times, and has been in sports broadcasting for such a long time. Turn now to Brian Hanley. He's with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I always get a chance to talk to, to Brian about What's going on in uh, in Chicago sports, <laughs> the Cubs and Sox and everything else? Brian, as always, I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for coming on. I want to get your thoughts about, first of all, the Cubs and the White Sox. From the Cubs standpoint, my goodness, you know, uh, one year on the contract for Joe Madden. I mean, what? I wonder what we can expect now if, if they fall short. Well, Joe can always be made or be at his new restaurant. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I guess either way. It probably won't. It'll probably be difficult to get a, uh, a table, but it would be a little awkward if he's not managing the Cubs when the restaurant opens. But um, you know, it is weird. Um, I, I get the fact that he's making what six million dollars now with the million dollar bonus from the World Series and days of paying managers uh, those types of salaries just seem to have gone the way of uh, you know shoveling money at free agents. So it seems like there it's probably cost effectiveness as much as anything else these days, but. You know, the fact that while we heard from the north side of town and Theo in particular was how there was urgency to come out of the gate strong and, you know, the games in April meant every bit as, were every bit as important as the games in September. And, you know, it seems like they've righted the ship, but boy, I mean, you're getting terrific pitching for the most part. And, uh, you know, you're, you're just barely above 500 at this point. So, uh, the last week and a half, two weeks, it's been good stuff. And, you know, yesterday, um, when they clobbered, you know, Seattle, you got spoiled from those types of games a couple of years previous, right? Where they were, it's run differential baseball, where they're going to win by four or five or six runs each day. But um, it's curious because you can't imagine Chris Bryant's going to be in a season long slump. He's starting to show signs of coming out of it. But they basically doubled down on the talent they had. So, uh, you know, we'll see how it all plays out. I don't know that the Brewers are that much better than they are as much as people thought they, you know, they were going to all of a sudden stick their head in front of the Cubs and never look back. But it's interesting. I saw um, Scott Reifert at Chuck Coppock's uh, service the other day. And uh, mm-hmm. Scott, of course, the vice president, uh, basically, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf's right-hand man who uh, helps uh, run the Sox. And um, he was lamenting uh, the injury bug fighting so hard on the South side, but it is, it's a more entertaining brand of baseball, and I, I told him so. I mean, it's tough. Even as a Cubs fan, you hate to see guys like Jimenez and all the injuries that they've had, but, uh, you know, some of the up-and-coming guys you wanted to see each and every day out there, that, um, you know, that, that's been kind of uh, taken off the tracks a little bit. And But that's baseball, right, Jonathan? So yeah. you, you, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But, you know, I guess, you know, I know that, People are getting anxious in the rebuild and, and want to see him start winning. And that, uh, you know, Ricky keeps talking about you have to keep winning games now and all that. Um, but I'd still say, realistically, they're two years away. Look, on the Cubs' standpoint, Brian, I just, 
it's, it's almost like Ricketts drew a line in the sand and said, look, here's the money that we've doled out to you. You gave, you know, we gave you money for you Darvish and for Chatwood and yep. that didn't work out. Yep. And so you, you do what you can with And, and the, the positive is to me, there's more positives on the Cubs and question marks. Like they're the, the question marks are obvious. They're not negatives. They're just question marks. So it's almost like, you know, Rickett said, look, you know, he, he denied saying it, but he did pretty much say we don't have any money for, for free agents because of what we've already spent. So I, I get that. This is not a, a tribune, Sam Zell, Wrigley gum situation. No, with the Cubs. no, they're, they're, yeah, you know, there, there wasn't window dressing, and here's your money. We just try, you know, make the best of it, so we can sell this thing. But the fact is, they're still a top five payroll, and they did to this point swing and miss on Darvish. You know, maybe you're getting a little bit uh, more hope in the last couple starts, but you know, for a guy who basically says I walk people, that's not really one what you hear from want to hear from a guy making 126 million dollars. <laughs> but you know that that's that's where you're at. You have kind of had a um, you know. If he um, off season or two in the last couple off seasons with the the money you put on some of these guys and and the return you certainly have received from a couple of them in particular, so um, it, it's not like the pinching pennies over there, but it seems like they have their baseball budget and they've they've gone limit up and they're not willing to pay luxury tax and you know what what you see is what you're going to get and now it's just a matter of you know the division is there for them to take it certainly that that would be reasonable to expect. But if the idea, again, is to win another World Series, well, then you better get your stars being your stars again. And I'm not so sure you can, outside of Javi Baez, um, you know, who you can count on day in, day out. Brian Hanley with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Brian, I saw the latest over-under for Bears wins was nine. And I think I'm going to go to the window quickly. I think that it's pretty obvious that that is an over. If it's an under, then I'm thinking it, it may not make the playoffs. That means there's injuries and question marks. If if the over under is nine, is that not a, a sucker's situation where you'd say, yeah, hey, maybe I, yeah it's 10 and it looks six, obvious. Right? Yeah, as a contrarian, if it looks obvious, you just go the other way. Um, you look at the schedule; it's tough enough. Certainly, you're losing Vic Fangio, and I, I'm a Chuck Pagano fan, but mm-hmm. you know. We'll see how that transition goes. Uh, certainly the defense carried the offense for the most part last season. And, you know, you can sit here and, and laud the uh, the running back, the kid, the kid from Iowa State, and say, you know, the sky's the limit and all that. It comes back to Mitch Trubisky. And this is make or break time for him now, not just for his career, but for this version of the Chicago Bears and their offense. And we'll see what Matt Nagy, you know, can, can get going here. But uh, – you know, I hate to say that only a few years in, you have to put that kind of pressure on the quarterback, but it's the NFL, you have to put that kind of pressure on the quarterback. So I think there are just enough questions that you'd, I'd probably take the under. And I'm not saying that that doesn't mean they can be a playoff team because I'm not sure what's going on in Green Bay at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know the Minnesota, you know, has their stuff figured out, and Detroit's seemingly a mess still. So, um, but. You know, you would think coming off the season they had that they would be what ten and a half, maybe eleven wins. Sure, certainly ten and over under. So it's just enough at nine to make you think. Hmm. It, if it looks too obvious, it's either mana from heaven or a sucker bet. <laughs> see, see, now I'm scared to to hit the button now. 
<laughs> I yeah. think I'm going to close the window. <laughs> well, it is the first week of May. I, I don't know that you need to rush the window on that one. Uh, you know, if, if anything, it probably goes up, right? If anything, people are going to look at that and you know start pounding the over on the uh, on the on the total wins, and you might get you know ten by the time it's all said and done. So you might want to wait anyway. First blush with the pen, I wrote down ten and six based on when the schedule first came out. I I'll change it by the time we get to Bourbon A, and I'll change it at the end of Bourbon A. So I I had ten and six based on and and ten wins seems fair. If it's nine, hmm, maybe there's something that uh, we got to keep our eyes on here with this. Yeah, well, if you're thinking so. ten, you might want to take it now. Uh, right. if, if I'm going under. I think I'll wait a month or two. Right. Uh, you mentioned mentioned Chet, and we. Um, we played some of our conversation with Chet. I talked to him last year, Brian. Um, yeah, I heard that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I went back and listened to the podcast because uh, I don't yeah. know if uh, John Greenberg, someone referenced it in one of their stories, and I immediately went uh, went to the computer and called it up. It was great. It was a great conversation. It was great hearing his voice again, too. He seemed to, he, he was in, at peace with everything when I talked to him. Uh, and I'm thinking that was a good day, and I think that's probably how he really felt about McNeil, how he felt about um, about his career, where he was in his life. Uh, what is at the time his his daughter was getting engaged before she got married, so he seemed like he was at peace. What What are your fondest memories of Chet in the business? Well, you know, just to that point, it was interesting at the service. Uh, uh, more than one uh, person who did the eulogies mentioned that, and uh, Bruce Levine, I think, in particular, mentioned that they uh, they met every uh, week for lunch, and it wasn't all sports talk. They talked life, and they talked even death. And a couple people mentioned that uh, Chet seemed to be at a different point in his life and much more uh, happy, and maybe let some grudges go. and And I, I believe it was Bruce who said that. He basically said if, if he were to go soon, uh, he would be okay with that because he did see his you know daughter get married. He was able to walk her down the aisle. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting that that kind of conversation comes up when a, when a guy's 70. He would have been 71 on Tuesday mm-hmm. um, because certainly that's not old at this point in time. I mean, that you know, he was a vibrant 70 at that. So, um my fondest memories are, are always the press box, John. And, and I know you were up there at times. And you know, he went, over thirty years. I don't know that there was a time when he didn't when he saw me coming, you know, down the hallway or in the press box. He didn't do to his, his best, uh, Randy Savage, you know, Hanley, and then he would have a, a quick one liner or something, and just you know, cracked me up immediately. And some of the best moments were when he pulled up a chair next year in the press box. It was difficult getting work done because all you did was sit there and uh, crack wise throughout the game, and uh, people would turn around and shush you, but you were having a great time. You know, thinking, boy, this is a pretty good job you got. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm forever indebted to Chet because I think the last time I was on these air, airwaves uh, that I'm on tonight uh, was on Chet's show all those years ago, even before the score started. And um, that's how uh, Seth Mason and uh, Dan Lee Heard, I think uh, Terry Bors certainly and me. Uh, Seth told me at one point that uh, that's where they heard me, and they picked up the phone. Fortunately enough for me, and, and asked me if I want to be a part of that thing from day one. So, you know, I, I would get a phone call from Chet maybe on a Friday night if Bert Sugar wasn't available or Dale Brown. Uh, I was somewhere on the on the B list or the speed dial, but I'd be walking out the door to go out and have a few pops or whatever, and you could tell Chet didn't have a guest. 
And uh, next thing you know, we did an hour on the phone. I mean, just completely spur of the moment type thing. We've all been there, right? You know, not mm-hmm. much going on, and a guest cancels or something, and all of a sudden, you, see, you know, start saying, "Okay, who can I, uh, who can I figure out to help me out here?" And it was always fun. I mean, it was always, always a great time, and uh, you know, always had fun whenever Chet was around. And I know other people referenced the fact that he would always wave to the section, not to a person. You know, and I'm, I experienced it firsthand at the old stadium was before a, a Bulls playoff game. I think. Uh, the kid from the Wonder Years was about eight years old. He was running around the court. And he was a big deal at the time. It was before the game, and some guy yelled Chet's name as we were standing along the uh, the sideline and uh, in front of the benches. And uh, he turned around, gave the big over, you know, over exaggerated, uh, over exaggerated wave. And he said, "See what I did there?" And I said, "No, what you did there?" He said, "I waved at the section. I didn't wave to the guy. I waved to the section." <laughs> he goes, "Like I should be taking notes on this. Like someone's <laughs> going to be calling my name." But you know, he loved it. He loved the uh, he loved the appeal. And Mark Jean Greco brought that up at the service that he used to take that lap around the old stadium, the United Center, uh, Center uh, Soldier Field, because he wanted to be seen. And uh, you know, it was like it was like uh, his lifeblood. He had to get that that thrill of of being not only on the field or on the court, but being recognized. And um, he ate it up. I mean, he really did. And it was uh, you know, some people thought. It was a little cartoonish, but, uh, you know, he wore it, he lived it, he breathed it. He didn't care what people uh, thought of him, and uh, I always got a huge kick out of it. Yeah, he lived the gimmick. That's what he was. That guy was Buddy yeah. Rogers. He was he was Ric Flair. That's who he was. I mean, that's, what... <laughs> that's exactly right. And, you know, I was uh, I was Tim Weigel's first intern when I was a, a summer uh, between sophomore, junior year in college. And Tim was, you know, uh, you know the Channel 7 sports anchor and, Soon enough, would become a news anchor for their uh, early edition um, shows because they were trying to get ratings back, and that's you know the sports guys uh, were the, the most popular guys uh, next to maybe John Coleman, but the sports anchors were were stars in this town, and that's how big of stars they were. Chet was certainly that. Johnny Morris back in the day, Mark G. Greco certainly today, um, but these you know these are guys that were big enough stars that the news director decided to put uh, Tim behind the news desk and, and ride that popularity out. And, you know, eventually he went back to being a sports anchor, but, you know, Chet was, you know, people have said it, he was larger than, uh, than life, not only physically six, six, but he was a, as big as most of the athletes he was covering at the time, if not uh, more popular. It's crazy. Brian Hanley with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Brian, what, how, uh, how difficult was the transition from being a sports writer to a sports talk show host and try to be able to do that full time? Because I was there on the ground floor of the score in 92 watching you, you know, try to figure out your schedule and when you could be able to host and when you couldn't because you were home and road and trying to do a talk show. How, how What was that process like for you? Yeah, it, it was crazy, and I got a little bit crazier to the point you really couldn't serve two masters and, and do either justice and, and wasn't fair to the Sun Times, and it certainly wasn't fair to the uh, to the station at the time when I left the Sun Times. I just I had to make a choice, and um, as much as my uh, sports editor Stu Courtney was working with me on it, and you know giving me you know a college beat that would, would you know allow me to to get up in in the morning and and do the early show, and then not have the demands of a lot of night games and such. Um, you know, it was just time to make a choice, and I, it, it was. It was a difficult choice in the sense that I always considered myself a newspaper guy. I think, you know, Terry Bores and, and 
anyone who's been in that business and was in it for a long time kind of, you know, figures that's who they are always. But, you know, at the time, it, it wasn't a difficult choice to make the transition um, because you just couldn't go to night games and get up at 2 in the morning and, and you know, do a, a morning drive shift. I mean, first first world, world problems, certainly. Um, but yeah. um, that that was probably a – back in you know, the days you referenced when we were first starting out the score, I was covering the Cubs. So I was at spring training, and then you know once we moved back north for the season, it was tough to to do the rotation with Danny Mack and, and Terry because um, you know I was supposed to be at the ballpark on certain days and on the road and all that. So um, it was tough, but it was it was great that they gave me an opportunity and uh, that I was able to do it uh, for all those years and then do it full time for more than a decade uh, with Mike. So with Molly, so it's um, you know. Just it, it's it's a lot of fun, and hopefully it's um, it's not over yet. You know, hopefully there's a another chapter or another opportunity down the road. What uh, I wrote down a name right here on my yellow pad, of course. Um, <laughs> it, I wrote down a name, <laughs> and, and and I want to ask Can you, you who's amplify this? on that for me. Uh-huh. Yes, I, I, I will amplify, sir. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Who was the strangest sports figure that you covered? I, I wrote down a name. I hope. I have got the right name. The strangest sports figure you covered. Strangest sports. Well, there, there, there are a couple. I mean, there's strange personalities, and then there's just um, there's a. I want to say it was Candy Maldonado was certainly odd. Uh, <laughs> I don't have that name. No. Well, he he was odd in the sense that he had a clause in his contract, if I'm not mistaken. Where on the road, his room couldn't be on a floor with any other Cubs players or personnel. Really? And, and it just made you wonder what Candy was doing that he couldn't have anyone on the floor that might happen to know him. Um, that was, but, and he would also, you know, like Chet, he would wear a full length mink in the summer. So that was kind of <laughs> odd, too. Um, uh, boy, Joe Murphy of the Hawks, I think, you know. Most of the guys on the team thought he was from a different planet, but he wasn't really a big enough star to to be concerned with. Um, God, I've covered so many. I, there's probably about I could go list of twenty with different quirks, and they could probably turn around and find twenty sports writers and broadcasters <laughs> and make that list too. Um, I wrote what, down. I, I wrote down for you from just knowing you and, and who you've covered. I wrote down Alpo Suhonen. Oh well, yeah. I mean, there's a guy. Yeah. They, he was he wasn't so odd as it was just foreign and more you know in the literal sense that this guy Mike Smith was trying to accumulate acquire rather every Russian player unfortunately not stars necessarily uh, under his reign as GM of Blackhawks and Alpo he he would want to get out of the practice early just because he had to go buy some wine and uh, cigarettes and. <laughs> <laughs> He, he had hit happy hour, but it was like a very refined happy hour. I remember Jimmy DiMaria, the uh, great PR guy for the Hawks. He, he, when we started writing know, negative stories and columns about that, that those Hawks teams, he would say, Jimmy, the media seems to be upset with me. What is going on here? And I'm like, well, Alpo, how long do you got? Um, yeah, he had some, he had some, some odd guys on that, uh, on that team. And at, at that time, Mike Smith, He'd walk into his uh, office at the United Center, and uh, you know, people always got bent out of shape that there wasn't any hockey memorabilia or anything. Like, you'd be walking into an insurance 
agent's office. They just thought, you know, you, that, that Mike Smith was a GM in name only and didn't really have a passion for the uh, for the team. But Alpo, I mean, Alpo, obviously, I don't think he resonated with the players much. He certainly didn't resonate with the fans, but that probably had more to do with the dysfunction of the team more than anything else. Those are my my favorite Hanley stories of <laughs> of of bad Hawks hockey. John Eves Larue, the the terrible, you know, five thousand. Because that that's that's my wheelhouse. That's my Hanley wheelhouse. Oh, of you telling those stories of like five thousand people at the United Center. Oh, we you know, count them. No, we no we home be up TV. in the press box and we we just take everyone to take a level and just you know then we add the totals. I mean, <laughs> there might be ten people in a section, right? And and we'd laugh at the announced attendance, but. You know, Bob Murray, even when Murph was the GM, you know, as much as Pulley was always the GM, but Murph actually had the title at times, you know, he would call me up and start, or wait for me to show up at the uh, at the rink, and he'd start, he'd have a copy of my column, and he'd be, you know, what is this, you know, what does this mean here? I'm like, what part don't you understand? I'll read it to you. And um, yeah. my old buddy, uh, you know, God bless Tim Sasson, we, mm-hmm. we lost him too early in life but he'd say they're like an old married couple because we'd just be screaming at each other <laughs> so murph was a little high strung and you know obviously things weren't going the way he wanted them to go and he actually to his credit he wanted to bottom out with the blackhawks when pulley had his string of 27 consecutive playoff appearances you know going and you know it was imperative that they make the playoffs not necessarily ever win the stanley cup but uh bob murray god bless him he knew that uh they were closer to the bottom of the top, and he was trying to bottom out and get high draft picks and, and build a team similar to the one that uh, ended up winning three Stanley Cup championships in a decade. So, yeah, those uh, those were interesting days indeed. <laughs> I've, I've been on, uh, in that same vein, I've been on Michael Reinsdorf's ass for what he's doing or not doing with the Bulls, and I related to some of the things that you used to write about or talk about regarding the Hawks after the passing of Bill Wirtz and Rocky Wirtz, it's his baby. And it's, he did things. Some people think it's, it's obvious, Brian, but I don't think it's obvious because clearly, you know, Rocky Wirtz could be like Michael Reinsdorf and just do exactly what dad did. But you saw yeah, no, what Rocky, Rocky did to make it different. And so my, and my as, whole, as quickly, as quickly as he did it. I mean, and I yeah. remember before Rocky, well, well, Bill Wirtz was still alive. Um, and Peter Wirtz was actually the guy with the office down this, the hallway from, Bill, so a lot of us just assumed that Peter Wirtz was going to be the the son that took over. Uh, you know, when when either Bill gave up the reins or ended up passing away as he did. And so I remember Rocky showing up at one of the semi-annual firing press conferences, and it might have been Mike Smith, it might have been Alpo, I, but I, I don't remember which one. And all of a sudden, I had never seen Rocky Wirtz before. And all of a sudden, he gets up to the microphone, the podium, and says, "You know, the fish stinks from the head down." Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, we're going to do things differently around here, and, and you know, you know, take my words to heart and watch me. And then we didn't see him for a few more years. But I remember writing a column that day, something to the effect like, you know, if this guy is true to his word, you know, you have some hope. And he wrote me a letter saying, I am true to my word, and you know, just basically, you know, stay tuned. And then years later, he took over, and not only just had a complete overhaul of everything, but did it as quickly as he did it, uh, and. You know, I got everyone's attention and um, obviously had an idea of how he wanted to to handle everything, and, and he did it in a first-class way, and, and everything you see pre, uh, before game, during the game, after the game, uh, every Blackhawks event. John McDonough was at Chet's service and did, had a terrific eulogy for Chet, too, and John, you know, 
he he demands, as he says, you know, people around him says every day he walks into me and says, "Bring me greatness on a daily basis." Basis, and um, you know, everyone knows where the the bar is set and the standard set. And and I talked to John before the service, and he's like, you know, well, he was lamenting the fact that as he said, another early vacation, but. You know, it seems like things are settling down and, and things are turning around, so you can only hope if you're a Blackhawks fan that they're back uh, on the right path anyway. But, um, you know, we'll see. But it's not that they're not taking anything for granted, and they're certainly not sitting on their laurels over there. And as long as John's in charge, that's not going to happen. I just want Michael Reinsdorf to do what Rocky's doing. Yeah. In that, yeah like I, like, you're, like if, if, my, if Jerry says... I want you to run the operation. Then you don't have to do exactly what what you know what Dad says. You do what's best for the organization. That means if you're not going to get rid of John Paxson, Johnny Jumpshot, who's been around for a long time, or Gar Foreman, you can make changes with a new set of eyes. Because the same eyes obviously are not getting it done based on the one loss record. I I wish that Rocky would, that that I wish that Reinsdorf would be more like Rocky in that regard. Yeah, and, and it's it's. I understand it's difficult to do when your dad is still you know around and and has his hands on uh, on the uh, organization as much as Jerry does. But it, it just is tough when you hear Michael explain away and, and basically say you know everyone doesn't know what they're looking at and tries to rationalize what's been going on. And I love John Paxson. I, I've got all day for him. He's always been very good to me. But I understand why people think you know the patience is worn thin if it's not completely gone and you know i guess maybe it's going to take uh, a day where people are at the bulls games uh, the guys covering the games are going to count the people in the stands because there's 10 10 in a section like the old hawks days mm-hmm. uh, but you know that doesn't seem to be any anytime soon right i mean they're still drawn they're still making money i know the tv ratings have uh, been down considerably the last couple of seasons and uh, i'm sure the radio ratings are going to reflect that as well but um, you can't just – you have to do it through the draft. I get that. You have to know what you're looking at through the draft. But until you can start really attracting not only star free agents, but superstar free agents, I mean real game changers, organization changers, you're fighting an uphill battle. And I, at some point just become – you're in such a down spiral that it's really tough to climb your way out, out of that hole. And, it, it, you know, it's almost an impossibility. So um, we'll see. I mean, we'll see where it's going. But – uh, yeah, I thought Casey Johnson had a terrific uh, end of the season summary, but basically saying, okay, you think you know, you, you can identify the core guys by name, but are are they really the core guys? They're going to, you know, be the core when you're winning a championship. If that if that's still a hope and dream, and you know, I, I sounds like Chris Dunn has got one step out the door. If mm-hmm. if you know, if they were to make that determination or could get anything for him right now, and that's you know, too bad because of. You know, you get him in the Jimmy Butler trade with Zach Levine. And, you know, Zach Levine puts up the numbers, but can he stay healthy? Can he attract other, you know, free agent stars? Who knows? And Lowry Markkinen uh, looks like if he stays healthy, there's another level of two he can make. But you need at least two of those guys, two and a half, three of those guys, before he can start thinking about championships and, and, you know, titles again. And it's been a long time since, what, 1998, a long time ago. Brian, thank you, man. Thanks so much for coming on my show. All right, John. I'll talk to you later. Thanks so much. You're listening to my man's and them. Just some men that's on the mic. And when we rock up on the mic, we rock the mic. What? J-Hood. On ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app.